right, as parents are making their way back down, go ahead and find your way to Acts chapter 10. Thanks for being here this morning. I'm excited about this chapter. Um, it's going to be a big chapter, but we're going to move through parts of it fairly quickly because it's more simply uh, presenting some facts and uh, nonetheless important, but we're going to move quickly through it to get to the main points. There really is one main point to this chapter. Um, despite the many verses, this is a pivotal moment, not only in church history, but in human history. And so Acts 10, I, I've loved studying this. I've been excited about it since last week, setting up for it. Um, this is such a great, great passage of Scripture. How many of you have heard of the missionary Hudson Taylor before? Okay, good. If you haven't heard of him, now you have, and I'm challenging you to go read about him. He, uh, he was, without a doubt, the most widely used missionary in China back in the 1800s. China was largely unreached with the gospel. And uh, through a series of events, Hudson Taylor became very burdened um, for that nation. What's interesting is, is my brother had a run-in with some Chinese Christians. This has been some years back in Albuquerque. And they told him, maybe 10 years ago I think it was, they told him then that Hudson Taylor was their spiritual father and that Hudson Taylor was Chinese. That's how long-lasting his influence still is in that great nation. Um, I'll give you some facts about his ministry before we look at a few specifics. During his 51 years of service in China, he began the China Inland Mission. He established 20 mission stations throughout inland China. Up to that point, missions had only been upon the coast in port cities. He pushed inward into China. Throughout that 51 years, he brought 849 missionaries to the field. And by 1911, there was 968 before they had to flee because of the Boxer Rebellion, if you've studied that history. He trained over 700 Chinese workers. He raised $4 million by faith alone. If you're familiar with George Mueller, who I quote often, George Mueller was his spiritual hero. He, he took everything to the Lord in prayer and faith, heavily influenced Hudson Taylor and, and did the same. He developed a witnessing Chinese church of over 125,000 people. And it's been said, to their best estimate, that 35,000 of those were his own converts. That he personally led to faith in Christ. And that he baptized upwards of 50,000 people in his 51 years of ministry. That would be like the entire town of Clovis and more, to give some perspective through the ministry of this one man. His gifts were incredible. His inspiration to the church still lives on. Here's what Hudson Taylor said. He said, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such that will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time, even life itself must be secondary. And he preached what, or he lived what he preached. He lost his first wife and he lost four of his eight children on the mission field to death. When Taylor started this ministry though, 
He was rejected by almost all the mainstream missionaries because of his approach to missions. He insisted, as I quoted earlier, that we go on faith alone. We don't solicit fundraising from people. His thinking was, it seems contradictory to ask people for money. If God wanted me to have it, he would have provided. So he didn't allow his missionaries to solicit for funds. If they needed money, they took it to the Lord in prayer. And if they needed it, they trusted the Lord would provide it. And he did, countless times. But the other thing that really broke rank from the standard missionary practice of that time was that he insisted his missionaries adopt Chinese culture and dress, specifically. This seemed ludicrous to missionaries during their day. But when he evaluated their ministries, they were ineffective and going nowhere. He believed that our Western culture was a barrier to the Chinese accepting us from the very beginning. And he wanted to remove that. So he insisted they dress and adopt Chinese culture as far as it's not sinful, right? I should clarify that. But he was rejected by all the missionaries and even mission organizations. Um, who wouldn't promote his missionary approach until after they started seeing God was with them and the fruit of it. He would say this later on in life, that his life wasn't easy. He said, at home, you can never know what it is to be alone, absolutely alone. He says, amidst thousands of people in these Chinese cities, I'm without one friend, one companion, and I'm with everyone looking on you curiosity, with contempt, with suspicion, or with dislike. Thus to learn what it is to be despised and rejected by men of those you wish to benefit and your motives not being understood. Today, this same barrier exists. Even today. In fact, it will exist in every generation that the church engages. There will always be some kind of barrier between us and the church. It was so in the early church, and that's really what this passage is about. Um, I'll save my sermon for a minute. But every great missionary endeavor ended up breaking new ground, and every lasting missionary endeavor ended up breaking the mold of what was currently being done. There will always be eternal principles, timeless truths that we as a church must hold on to that guide our practice, that guide our faith, that guide our beliefs. But I see it this way. The church, if it's going to continue to thrive, must have one hand firmly on those eternal truths while at the same time reaching firmly ahead, sometimes into the unknown. If we simply hold on to what we've always known, we've already missed the boat. And that's the nature of the church. And that is what we're seeing today. In case you haven't noticed, we as Christians are foreigners in our own country, are we not? We speak a language and a faith largely unknown to this generation coming up. And so we as a church must understand that those whom Christ called out of this generation are not going to look like us. They're not going to talk like us. They're not going to have believed what we believe. But God loves them nonetheless. They are beloved by Him. 
So we've got to find, as a church, where is that balance? What must we firmly hang on to? And what must we adopt in ministry? This is exactly what Peter was faced with in Acts chapter 10. He understood from many of Jesus' sayings, John 3.16, right? Whoever would, would believe on me. He understood that the gospel was not simply for the Jews. It would extend to all the world. Those principles are firmly established in Scripture and through Jesus' own ministry. But what Peter still held on to, and this is really what we're going to look at in Acts 11 and then Acts 15, is he still thought the world must convert to Judaism to enter into the church. And God's about to blow that out of the water. No, they don't. They must convert to me. We have a similar problem with engaging the culture today. Must they convert to us first? Or must they convert to Christ? When they walk through our doors, what if they don't look like us? What do we do? There's, there's no greater contrast that we're going to see anywhere in Scripture than what we find here. A Roman falling on his face, worshiping a Jew. It would have blown the minds of everyone. It did blow the minds of the Jews watching it. We're going to see that. They stood in amazement, but it also brought clarity as to what exactly the grace of God does for people. And it's going to challenge us, okay? So, our chapter, as it unfolds, it's a long chapter, but it's going to flow fairly easily. This is a visual culture, and so I think you'll, you'll understand this. The chapter really unfolds much like a movie. There's different scenes, and, and it flashes back and forth the way Luke wrote it. The first scene we're going to see is, is verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at Cornelius being prepared for what's about to happen. Then all of a sudden, Luke flashes down to Joppa in verses 9 through 16, and God is preparing Peter at the same time. And then there's the initial contact that the servants make in 17 through 23. They flash back up to Caesarea. There's the meeting between Peter and Cornelius and all of his friends and family. And then there's the presentation of the gospel in 34 through 43. And then finally the two worlds collide. So let's get going in our passage. And hopefully that will help you follow along. Alright, so scene one. We're looking at verses one through eight here. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them. To Joppa. So let's get these facts laid out. We're going to revisit this account here in a little bit, so I don't want to carry on too long. Caesarea, where Cornelius is, is about 30 miles north 
of Joppa. It'd take about two days to get there, walking, okay? We're told that Cornelius was a centurion. A centurion was a commander in charge of 100 men. And, and we're also told he was part of the Italian cohort. Now, a, co a cohort was, uh, was made up usually of six um, centurions, so 600 soldiers, okay? There would be six centurions per cohort. 600 soldiers uh, would make up a cohort. Sometimes, though, especially here in, in, uh, in Israel, the cohorts would be up to 1,000 soldiers big. So 10 centurions would, would be over these 1,000 soldiers. The centurions were very well taken care of. They were very well paid. They were paid sometimes as much as five times that what a normal soldier would be. So they carried a lot of wealth where they were, and they carried a lot of social and political influence wherever they were. So this was a man of no small stature, economically or socially or politically. He was in the know. But we're also told that he was devout, that he feared God, he and his household feared God, that he gave alms generously, alms were gifts to the poor. And that was probably because as a, as a Gentile, he was not allowed to make sacrifice in the temple. He was not allowed to even go in the temple. And so he probably directed his money to the poor in almsgiving. And that he prayed continually. In fact, just reading that, you would think that Cornelius, if you took out the fact that he's a Roman and a centurion, this looks like a pretty devout Jew. We're never told that he converted to Judaism. I don't think he ever became a Jewish proselyte. But he did adopt as far as he could Jewish faith and practice. So, his vision, what are we told about that? We're told that he was praying around the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. This was one of the prescribed hours of prayer for a Jew. So again, we're, we're given some information of, of Cornelius' devotion to the Jewish practice. 3 p.m. would have been a devoted time of prayer. He was praying. And he's told by an angel that your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. What was a memorial? Some try to make this passage to say that works play a role in saving us. It was Cornelius' works that brought his attention to the Lord. That's not what this word means, nor is it what the idea presents. Works never have a role in securing our salvation. The term memorial in Scripture is connected with this idea of a sacrifice being remembered by the Lord. The Lord took notice of it. He remembered what Cornelius did. This is used uh, in Leviticus chapter 2, for instance, several times. Paul uses this same idea in Philippians 4.8 with their sacrificial gift being a pleasing aroma. It's the same idea uh, to indicate that God was pleased with it. So as we're going to see, the prayers and the gifts were not sufficient to save Cornelius. In fact, let's just look at it now. Flip over to chapter 11, verse 14. We're not told this in chapter 10 because Luke saved it till chapter 11 when Peter recounts the, the story again in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 14. Let's read 13 with it. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So despite Cornelius' devotion, despite his religious practice, 
He was not a saved man. Now that strikes home with American culture big time. In fact, most Americans probably weren't as devoted religiously as Cornelius was and considered themselves saved people. Not so. Salvation only comes by faith in the gospel, not through prayers, not through giving, not through your devotion. It is by faith in the gospel. And so, despite that, God took notice of Cornelius. So I'm not going to say that his devotion was unnoticed. God took notice and made sure to send someone with the gospel to him. That is biblical, okay? But I want to make a contrast here because this is so interesting. This is the first of two contrasts that we're going to see. The other we'll see in the next scene, scene two. Here, Cornelius, by every outward account, looks to be a good and righteous man and yet still needs salvation. Right? Though religiously devoted, he was still without hope in the world. Because our good activities are never good enough. And that's the reality. They're never good enough. So outwardly, very religious. Inwardly, needed salvation. Let's move forward though. So there's the facts of Cornelius' vision. He sends three men right away, just as the angel commanded him, to head down to Joppa. It would take two days. So in the meantime, we flash back now to scene two. We flash back down to Joppa. In verse 9, we pick it up. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour. That would have been noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So Peter, as the men are approaching Joppa from Caesarea, Peter has this vision of this great sheet being let down from heaven and its four corners are let down on the earth. So it's opened up and inside there is every kind of animal, reptile, and bird. Now if you go to Leviticus chapter 11, which I have up there, the Mosaic law forbid Jews to even touch certain kind of animals, fish, birds, reptiles. They were forbidden. You've probably heard of the, the Jewish kosher laws, the dietary laws that many Orthodox Jews still follow today. They would have been defiled. Peter himself, up to this point in his life, still adhered to the kosher diet. I've never eaten any of this, Lord. So they were forbidden for the Jews, okay? It's an interesting parallel also, of where this takes place. We talked about this in our Tuesday night Bible study um, that we're going to pick back up in September or late August. Where this happened. If you go to the book of Jonah, right? Remember this? Jonah was a prophet of God, commanded by God to go to the Gentile power, Nineveh. He flees to Joppa, this city, and tries to avoid obedience of taking this message to the Gentile world. You contrast that today 
Here we also have a man of God in Joppa, who God has commanded to take a message to the Gentile world. And what's going to happen? The exact opposite. Peter will obey. And we're going to see the great fruit of it. It's an interesting parallel. Go look at it. I've never seen that before. Uh, we did our Tuesday night study. It was really cool. So it's going to lay out this vision for Peter. Let's look at it a little more in depth. At first, Peter refuses the Lord's direction to kill and eat, saying, By no means, Lord. He was prone to doing this. Right? Peter was prone to challenging the Lord. No. In, Mar in Matthew 16, for instance, when Jesus says, I'm about to be crucified. Far be it from you, Lord, that anyone would do this. He was prone to saying no to the Lord. One pastor said it this way. You can say no and you can say Lord, but you cannot say no, Lord. I like that. But this whole dialogue exchanged between Peter and the Lord happened three times. What the Lord is doing is he's beginning to show Peter, even though he has already declared this, um, that many of the ceremonial laws that the Jews kept were actually keeping them from Gentile fellowship. And God's about to remove that barrier with the new covenant that Jesus established. Nothing is to hinder or get in the way of fellowship between people because God has cleansed all from the things that truly divide us, the sinful things of the heart, God has made us new and cleansed us. These outward things are not to be a problem. Okay? There's also an interesting point here. Mark's Gospel, Mark 7, 19. Jesus said this, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled? And then Mark adds this note. Thus, he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Why is this interesting? Because Peter was Mark's source for this text. At this point in Acts, Peter didn't get that statement. Many years later, when Peter is giving Mark all this information for his gospel, he remembered this statement and then he understood. Hmm. Jesus way before Acts 10 ever happened, actually said, food is okay to eat. Here in Acts 10, he's got to remind Peter. Um, I wrote here in my notes, this is, this is so good for us as a church, especially if we've been Christians for any time. We see in Acts that Peter, at this point in the church's growth, still did not understand certain sayings of Jesus. The implication that it had on the ceremonial law, it would not be till after this encounter with Cornelius that Peter, the apostle, who up until now in Acts has been so greatly and widely used, did not come into this fuller understanding of grace. How many of you in your Christian walk tend to get discouraged with where you might be at in your walk? Absolutely. Put yourself in this account. This is Peter. How many thousands of people has he led to the Lord at this point? How many, perhaps hundreds, thousands of miracles has he done up to this point? The Lord is using him greatly, and yet he still didn't understand grace, essentially. He understood grace. I guess what he wouldn't understand is how far exactly grace extended. God is about to readjust his thinking. 
So there's two points in this contrast. The first we saw was Cornelius, a very religious man who yet was without salvation. Here, we have a man who does have, have salvation and yet is incomplete in his understanding. You see the contrast? It's a humbling one, isn't it? Cornelius needs salvation outwardly. We might not guess that to be the case. Peter, outwardly, no doubt he's a believer. Inwardly, he's ignorant of some truth and he needs to grow. We can find ourselves in one of those two men's shoes, can we not? I've been Cornelius, and I've been Peter, and am still Peter in many ways. I love that point. It's a point, in other words, to keep us humble as a church. None of us have arrived. All of us need to continue to grow. I am accepted by God simply on the basis of His grace through faith, not by keeping the rules which is where Peter was still somewhat stuck in. So Peter refused at that point, saying, I'm not going to eat that, Lord. But this shifts us to Acts, uh, verse 17 to 23, verse, or, uh, scene 3. So while Peter is contemplating this, it says, Peter inwardly is perplexed, verse 17, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. At that very time, in other words, Peter's sitting up on the roof going, what in the world is this? He gets a knock on the door. That's what's going on. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was lodging there. So while Peter, verse 19, was pondering the vision, the Spirit says to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. What are we told in verse 21? And Peter went down. The command, rise and go down, and Peter went down. Now here's where Peter's matured. Right? He didn't obey because he understood the vision. He obeyed because the Spirit commanded him to go. In other words, he went forward in obedience without fully understanding everything that's going on. That is what faith does. So many of us in our walk of faith get paralyzed in moving forward because of our own ignorance. Right? Especially in ministering to people. Lord, I don't know what will happen. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And therefore you never go. Learn from Peter's example here. He didn't understand he didn't even know what was going on. All he was told, three men are looking for you. I've sent them, go down to them, okay? It's the same pattern of faith we saw last week. Peter's out and about doing what he knows to do. God leads him to Lydda. From there, he leads him to Joppa. In Joppa, he leads him to Simon the Tanner's house, not having a clue what God's doing up in Caesarea and Cornelius' heart. He walks in faith. Peter did do that. So his lack of understanding of grace, he would be brought in and compensated through his faith. He didn't understand the vision. He obeys simply because the Spirit commanded him. That is how we are to live as well, church. I can guarantee you, as we move forward in ministry, and as ministries open up and develop, you're going to be challenged with ignorant situations, where your own ignorance of what to do, what to say, how to go forward, is put before you. If you let that paralyze you so that you don't do anything, you're going to actually shipwreck your faith. What you can do because God has promised He'll be with you is go. Right? 
Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, what do I do? I'll give you the words. Is that sufficient for us? Absolutely. If it's not sufficient for us, then we need to confess it and say, I'm sorry, Lord, for not trusting you. What the Lord has given us is sufficient to move forward. And Peter illustrates that. I love it, okay? So we see the walls of separation uh, beginning to come down. Let's keep reading. So verse 20, it says, uh, Rise and go down and accompany, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said to him, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. Verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guests. So here's the walls of separation beginning to crumble even further. Last week we saw this, right? Peter touches a dead body. Peter's staying into Tanner's house. Both things defiled him. Now he's letting Romans into his home to stay the night with him. It, it reminded me, jokingly, of uh, the Berlin Wall coming down, right? You remember uh, the Scorpion song, Winds of Change? You can kind of hear that playing in the background. That's why that song was written. That's what's happening. Never would Jews let Romans into their home. That wall's crumbling. Even though it's not there yet, it is no doubt crumbling and quickly. So the next morning, let's pick it up. The next day, he arose with them and went away. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now we're told in chapter 11, verse 12, that there were six more brothers with Peter. So seven total accompanied these three men. In verse 24, and on the following day, the second day of their journey, they entered Caesarea... And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And so Cornelius, let's read this really quickly. Cornelius recounts what happens. He said in verse 30, four days ago, about this hour. So it's about three o'clock when Peter's arrived and talking with him. About this hour, I was praying in my house. At the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So some of the brothers that accompany Peter, I think it's worth noting on that point how important that is for Peter to have witnesses. When these Romans show up to Peter and say, hey, our master Cornelius, the centurion, was visited by an angel and the angel said, come find you. Surely that got Peter's engine going. Okay, Lord, what are you doing? Right? 
it is not common for Romans to seek out Jews in this manner. Peter's invitation for them to stay with him also shows that in his heart, the resistance is, is being taken away. So, my hunch is that Peter began to suspect something big when these servants told Peter what had happened to Cornelius, and he therefore brought witnesses with him. They would play a role. We're going to see in chapter 11 and chapter 15, the church didn't quite accept what had happened. But Peter was not making it up. He's got witnesses, right? How important that is. Secondly, I love this point that Cornelius is already an evangelist before he's even converted, right? He's brought all of his friends and all of his family and upon seeing Peter, Cornelius falls down and worships him. That's literally the word, worship. It's understandable, right? We can kind of go, why would you worship a man? But it's understandable Cornelius' reaction. Who wouldn't think Peter a great person if an angel appeared to you and said, go find Peter? He's going to tell you something that's going to save your souls. You'd have an extremely high regard for that man. But Peter's humility comes forward. He says, stand up. I'm not to be worshipped. He says in verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful this is. This statement, don't understand it this way. Peter's not saying, I don't know what I'm doing here, I'm a little edgy. What Peter's saying is, You yourselves know that this encounter shouldn't happen lawfully. But I'm here, right? It's a statement of his willingness. In fact, that's what he says. He says, But God has shown me that I should call, not call any person common or unclean. So I'm asking you, why are you here? Why have you sent for me? Why am I here? And then Cornelius summarizes his statement. But what got me, I actually laughed when I read this. The last verse there, verse 33. At the end of it, he says, Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. I thought to myself, man, that is every pastor's dream. Next week, I'm fully expecting all of you to sit down with one voice and say, We're all here. Preach it to us, preacher. <laughs> that was quite the audience, captive audience. I'm sure Peter never had that kind of audience again. I love it. So Peter opens his mouth in verse 34, scene 5 here. And he opens this way. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did. Both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death. By hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear. Not to all the people. But to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter shares the gospel. We're going to highlight three main points in this brief sermon. The first is God's impartiality, verse 34 and 35. Truly I understand God shows no partiality. In other words, God looks with no distinction upon race, class, position, sin. We all have it. We're all someone. And God makes no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're someone great or someone small. That does not impress God whatsoever. We people struggle with this because of our own pride. We always compare and exalt ourselves over one another. The Lord doesn't deal that way. He's not impressed with our status. There's so many verses I could have put in here. I cross-referenced four of them. But over and over and over, God has testified in both Old and New Testaments, He is not partial. But he goes on in verse 35, In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let's define that word acceptable. It's important. The word means welcome. It means welcome to him. It does not denote the idea of justified before him. Which we understand justification is so important, right? How are we justified before God? It's not on the basis of our own righteousness, on our own works. We're justified, declared righteous on the basis of trusting Jesus. That's what justification is. This term does not denote justification before God. It simply is denoting that God's grace and favor is available. All are welcome to it. He does not have prejudice or distinction with people. If you want to do what's right, if you want to trust Him, you can come. It's an open invitation. All people in every nation, anyone who would fear Him. So he highlights God's impartiality. But he goes forward and he gets to the heart of the gospel. This is verse 36 to 41. Good news of peace through Jesus. There's three things he highlights. He highlights Christ's life in verses 36 to 39. In that first part, the good news of peace through Jesus is demonstrated in the life that Jesus lived. Jesus came and lived, and what did he do? He did good continually, and he preached peace continually. In fact, Peter says that he was healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. I was thinking about that statement as we did our PRC counseling this week. Um, as it was on my mind. Being oppressed by the devil is something that we don't often think actually is going on. Right? But I was putting it in the context of our, our training where we're going to be counseling people who are trying to get options for their pregnancy. One of those options that they might be seeking is abortion. And now we're not obviously counseling to do that. We're trying to steer them away from that. But I started seeing that these, this ministry is truly putting themselves in their shoes. And what, these, what they found is these people come into the ministry who are considering abortion. And they've been convinced through lies and deception and the circumstances, sometimes through their own choices, that there's no other choice for them but to abort their, their baby. Lies and deceptions, no doubt. But they believe it. Satan is the father of lies. 
And if he can deceive us into thinking something like that, all the better. So they might follow through and have an abortion. And then what does Satan do? He turns around and never lets up on them. Oppresses them, oppresses them, oppresses them, oppresses them. And then, of course, there's the cruelty seen in Satan in the destruction of that little life. Right? That is the oppression of Satan. I love the ministry that we're going to get to be a part of because, you know what? People do have abortions, but they can be forgiven. That is something forgivable. God still loves them, and he can redeem their life out of that. But it highlights the cruelty and the oppression that we see in the world, right? How cruel and truly wicked Satan is. What did Jesus do? He entered into their situation, met them where they were, and loved them. Served them, fed them, and preached salvation. He lived it through his life. He secured it in his death. Verse 39, even though we put him, nailed him to the tree, verse 40, God raised him from the dead. So Peter highlights his life, his death, and his resurrection. That is what the gospel is. It's that simple. Jesus demonstrated he is the Christ through his life. He secured all righteousness for us by his perfect life. He secured forgiveness for us through his death. And he secured our justification through his resurrection. Everything was done by him for us. And he gives it as a gift. And Peter simply summarizes that to these Gentiles. He doesn't make it overly complicated. He says, you yourselves know this. You were witnesses to these things. You heard of this man. Here's what all that meant. Let me put it before you plainly. He lays it out. And then he says this, the gospel of grace has been fully revealed. Verse 42 and 43, after all this took place, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Several points we can pull out from here. One, he's Lord. Jesus is Lord. He was raised from the dead. And because of that, he looks at the apostles and says, go and preach. All authority has been given to me. He's Lord. Secondly, he's the judge of the living and the dead. There will be a day when he comes back in judgment. He is to judge every man's deeds. For those whose deeds are wrought in Christ, it will be made plain. And those whose deeds are wrought in sin, it also will be made plain. That day, Paul says, will reveal it. Third, he fulfills all prophecy. Peter says, to him, all the prophets bear witness. You remember Jesus' own account of this after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, walking with the two disciples who are grieved. What's Jesus do? He begins in the Old Testament and goes through it all and says, it all pointed to me. I love that. And fourth, that Jesus is Savior of everyone who would believe in him. Verse 43. And there's four points to that. How strong of an emphasis this is. He is Savior of everyone who believes. Strong confirmation was given of that point by saying all the prophets bear witness to this. The entire scripture bears witness to the fact that Jesus will save you if you trust him. That's the word of the scripture. Secondly, 
It's through His name. There's one way of salvation. Peter and elsewhere said in Acts 4, there's no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. It's through Him or there is none. Because no one else lived a perfect life to give us righteousness. No one else paid the penalty for our sin. And no one else has been raised from the dead for our justification. It's through His name or no one. But the simple means by which we have it, it's not by works. You believe in Him. It's by faith. Whoever believes. And the results of that are definite. We will receive forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. You will receive forgiveness. Now is that good news? Or what? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Glad you guys are back. So here's where two worlds collide. I love this. As Peter was still saying these things. So Peter undoubtedly had a long sermon planned. And it's funny. If you go back in the Gospels... Peter was interrupted by the Father in the middle of saying something. He was interrupted by Jesus in the middle of saying something. And now he's interrupted by the Holy Spirit. He's saying something. Peter talked too much. He kind of reminds me of me. He was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, those six men who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So as Peter's still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all Cornelius and his family and friends. How did he know? We're going to see that in a minute. They began to speak in tongues, but it amazed the Jews who witnessed this. Verse uh, 46, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and praising or extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain with them for some days. So the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard, implies that they believed what Peter was saying about the gospel. They believed that message that Jesus came preaching peace, that his life, his death, his resurrection secured for them forgiveness of sins. It implies hearing with faith. If you go over to Ephesians 1.13 with me real quick. Here's how I can justify that. Ephesians 1.13. You might as well keep your finger here. We're going to come back to this portion in a little bit. To end. Ephesians 1.13. Remember Ephesus is definitely a Gentile city. But what's Paul tell them? Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What's the order? Hear and believe. You also were sealed in the Spirit. Let's look at a contra example. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Many people hear the gospel, but their hearing is not with faith. They're not believing it. That message then will not profit your soul anything. If hearing is not united with faith, you can hear the gospel and it won't change you. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Therefore, this is verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
How do we fail to reach it? Verse 2. Well, good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See that? The gospel can profit you nothing if you don't believe it. It's by faith. When you believe it, you're transformed. You're made a new creature. So you hear with faith, you're saved. You hear without faith, profits you nothing. How do we know that Cornelius and his family and friends believed it? They received the Spirit. Two worlds collide. The Gentiles begin speaking in tongues and praising God. This literally is the Gentiles' Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 for the Jews. Emmanuel, God with us. Jew, Gentiles also, right? In substance, there was literally no difference as far as the outward proof of God's acceptance between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why the Jews stood amazed. There was no difference in their acceptance between the Jews and the Gentiles. Everything that happened to Peter and the Jews on the day of Pentecost happened to the Gentiles. The Spirit fell on them. They began speaking in tongues in worship and praise of God. It's exactly what happened to the Jews. Both received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the same way. Way and both evidence this reception through the speaking of tongues. So tongues in this case, as in the case of Pentecost in Acts 2, as well as in the case of Philip in Samaria, when the gospel went out from Jerusalem, each instance, the move of the Spirit outwardly, geographically, as well as ethnically and sociologically, each one of those moves was evidenced by speaking in tongues. That's not the pattern, as, as some try to teach, that's not the pattern today. There's no reason for that sign to be given. God's already moved to the Gentiles, and Peter needed to know it. And so he was witnessed by it. He, he witnessed it by the speaking in tongues. So he asked rhetorically, can anyone hold, withhold water for being baptized? Now, stop and think about how big of a statement that is. These are Gentiles. These are Roman soldiers. Can we stop them from joining the church? Outwardly being recognized as equal members of us? No. It's a rhetorical question. Proof of discipleship is they believed and were filled. They were baptized. They've been accepted into the visible church. Peter then stays many days with them in council and training up. But let's go to what this implies. And this really is the main point and move of this entire chapter. Go to Ephesians again with me. Chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what Paul would write many decades later. Paul, the very zealous Jew, became so zealous for the gospel to the Gentiles. He became the apostle to them. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For in him, for he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one and has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, which is what Peter saw, right? The law which divided Jew and Gentile from clean and unclean. God broke that down, those ordinances. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's what Peter just witnessed. The one spirit is now dwelling in them who were my sworn enemies, who were the Gentiles, the dogs, who were the alienated ones. Now we both come to God the same way. We're united by one spirit. The hostility, the division that existed, God has torn out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He's made peace. This is what Peter just witnessed. It is God's move to the Gentile world, uniting both in his son. This is the momentous occasion. In fact, every single one of us here tie our salvation back to this event. God in his grace moving to the Gentiles. The gospel literally nothing, nothing is in the way now of the gospel running rampant through the world. How many of you guys like those movies, Lord of the Rings? Remember when those came out? I like Lord of the Rings movies. There's that scene in the third one where, where the enemies of, of uh, I can't remember all their names now, but the king are pounding on the gates, right? Pounding on the gates and they burst through and just take over the city, the white city. And they start yelling, the gates are breached, the gates are breached, right? That's kind of what I thought of, except in the reverse. I love it. <laughs> I'm sure Satan and his minions are yelling, the gates have been breached. And now the gospel, the saints are conquering the world. Nothing can stop them. The last gate that was withholding, that was a dividing wall of hostility, has just been removed by the Lord. Paul would say in the book of Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Barbarian, Scythian, we're all one in Christ. He's united us all. This is such a transformation of humanity, is what this is. It is the extension of God's grace. The challenge, though, for the church and for us is exactly what I opened up with with Hudson Taylor's ministry. I see in the church today very much Things going on that were similar, maybe not quite as severe in their hostility. But just the way that the Jews treated and outlooked, looked out upon the Gentile world, that attitude exists in the church today. We don't permit other people into our group. And God has just stated, yes, you do, because they're mine. He's removed it. And so we as a church must always be mindful of, especially in this generation, this postmodern generation coming up, that generation has been lied to, has been deceived into thinking all kinds of crazy and bizarre things. But you know what? The Lord is calling them out too. And the church must be there to meet them, to receive them where they're at. And just like Peter then stayed many days with them to build them up, that's what we've got to do. They're not going to look like us. 
They're not going to know what you know. They're not going to talk like you talk. They're not going to even behave like you behave who are mature in Christ. But the church goes to them. That is its mission. And the minute we begin to become that clique where that compassion for those outward ceases, we're going we're gonna to stop being a church. This is what Christ is about. The Gentiles in this day, they were dogs. The way they lived was horrendous. Read what the Romans did. And it's difficult to read. Jill and I just the other day watched the movie The Apostle Paul. I don't know if you've seen previews for it. It's fairly new, I think. It was really good. It was a really good movie. But it was hard to watch at times because it depicted Nero burning the Christians as candles to light up his city. The cruelties of the Romans in this time was horrendous. But what has God just done? I love him. And I'm going to save him. And I'm going to transform him. And Peter, I'm starting with you. Go. That's what we're about, church. And how exciting a ministry is this? There's really one point to this chapter, and that's it. God's done the work. Let's be obedient. We might not understand it. We might not see what's implied. We might not know what's next. But the Spirit says go. And we, like Peter, need to get up and go. And that's it. We are, we are, I shared last Sunday night the long-term vision. What I see the Lord starting to move us to is, is to truly be transformed in how we do church and, and approach each other. It's not going to look like maybe church that we knew, that we're comfortable with. It's going to require us to get out of our comfort zone and do things we may have never done before. To engage people that we maybe never would have engaged. But you know what? The Lord will change you in the process, just like He changed Peter. You might come to a fuller understanding of grace like Peter did and say, Now I understand. Wow. I've been a Christian all these years. I've been used by the Lord for a very long time. I've been fruitful in my life. But I was lacking some understanding. Thank you, Lord, for stretching me. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me into this ministry. That's what I see for Waypoint. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. So with that, let's invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing one last song as I close out in prayer. Father, I thank you for this message. It's been a great passage of Scripture for me. But as I said earlier, Lord, it didn't escape me. That contrast we had between Cornelius and Peter, where Cornelius, though very religious and devoted, he was without salvation still. He still needed the gospel to hear it, to believe that Jesus lived, died, and was raised for him. That the life Jesus lived was the righteousness we need. The sinlessness of Christ is what I need to be able to stand before the Father. And in his death, he paid that penalty for those things that I am guilty of. And in his resurrection, he offers me that free gift of righteousness by faith. He justifies me. All of Cornelius' giving, all of his prayers...
couldn't add, couldn't add up enough. But when he saw, Christ is all I need. He's done what I couldn't do. He believed it, and the Lord saved him. Father, I know there's many here. Father, who might have religious things, but they don't have Jesus. Father, show them. Give them hope, just like we saw with Cornelius. It is not your desire for any to perish. Peter would later say in his letter, but for all to come to repentance. Father, the only sin that you will not forgive is unbelief. The requirements you've placed upon man is one. Believe in me. Salvation is by grace through faith. You simply receive it. You confess your inability. And you see that Christ gives it as a gift. Father, may your spirit work in people's hearts today to come to that place of peace where there might be turmoil inwardly. But Father, there's also the other contrast of Peter. No doubt a believer at this point. And yet he didn't understand grace. He was still living under the law somewhat. And you brought him in under grace more fully. Father, the other half of this group, we can understand your grace more fully. We have prejudices in our heart that keep us back from ministering. Father, remove them. Bring us to a place of stop saying, I can't do that, to saying, okay, I'll go. Just like Peter last week put himself in a position of availability. And we saw just now what you did with him. Father, you do that with anyone. As you asked in Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Father, may we respond. I'll go. Here I am. Bring our hearts to a greater understanding of just how far your grace will extend. Father, we can think of the darkest things that we've witnessed. Maybe in person. Maybe personally. And the grace of God meets us there. There is no place that grace can't reach. For where our sin abounded, Paul said, your grace abounds much more. May we as your children understand and with the power of your grace go into the darkest places of the world and watch you transform it to be a kingdom of light. Where sin and darkness reigns, Father, you establish righteousness in the hearts of people. May we be a church used in that way here in Clovis and then abroad. Thank you for saving us, Lord, for giving us hope and for giving us purpose, an eternal purpose. Father, it's not to simply get a house or to get a good paying job. We're working for an eternal kingdom that will never fade, that will never end, that deals with the salvation and souls of people that we will live with forever and ever. Who are broken, who are hurting, who come to know the love of Christ and the peace that passes all human understanding. Do that work here.